Thanks for joining us. You're listening to the Life Church Podcast. In these episodes, you will hear encouraging messages from our weekend services. If you'd like to know more about us, watch a live stream or find the closest Eastern Iowa campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. Happy New Year again. Um, I uh, think of only one thing when I think of New Year, and that is, anybody? Yeah, resolutions. Do you guys make New Year's resolutions? I'm, I'm not a believer in New Year's resolutions, probably because I don't think I've ever kept one ever in my life. But apparently it's a big thing. Forbes says that 37% of Americans will make a New Year's resolution this year. And of those 37%, 87% say they're likely to keep it. I wonder if they're likely to be kidding themselves, but I mean, I hope not. Well done. Uh, but I do think that a new year is a great time to reflect on who we are and who we want to be in Jesus' name. Because while I've never been able to keep a single resolution, God keeps his promises and will continue working on us until he brings us home. My husband and I have two little girls, five and seven, and we were talking to them about resolutions. Um, My seven-year-old, Pippa, in true oldest child fashion, said that she wants to read more of the Bible this year. That's her resolution. And my youngest, Phoebe, said that she wants to be less naughty this year. (laughs) Stay tuned for how that is going. But their resolution for me was that I should feed them more snacks, which I think is all I ever do. But that's what they said. (laughs) Um, they have this tradition with their dad that on Sunday nights um, is story night. If you are a parent, babysitter, auntie, uncle, grandma, grandpa, you know that bedtime can be the most frustrating time of the whole day. It's like a whole series of things that have to happen. So they they can't do story time every day. They would never get to bed because there's jammies and brushing your teeth and praying and this and that. But Sunday night is story night, and they look forward to it as a highlight of their week every week. In fact, Pippa already was mentioning it in the car on the way here. Dad, do you have a story ready? Because he's already exhausted all the normal fairy tales, and they do not like reruns. These are literary critics, I'm telling you. (laughs) We all love a great story. Whether it be your favorite show or movie, novel, or just a story your friend is telling you about their day, everyone loves a good story, and that's not surprising because God made us that way. He loves a good story, too. He's writing one. Uh, My girls have already worked and ripped their way through many a children's Bible in their short lives, but my favorite one is this one, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, I just love the way that it relates the stories for little ears and connects everything to Jesus, and I'm not getting paid to say that. It's not a product placement. I just really like it. Sally Lloyd-Jones authored and translated it, and of the Bible, she writes, the Bible is first and foremost a story. The Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. It's the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It's a love story. It's an adventure story. And at the center of the story is a baby, the child upon whom everything would depend, and every single story in the Bible whispers his name. We're going to dive into one particular story today, and then we're going to talk about what kind of story we want to be living with our lives. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. It's not a very well-known story. You may or may not have ever heard it or read it before, so a little bit of background. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 5 was written to Jews, Hebrews, 
living in exile in Babylon. It's traditionally thought that the prophet Jeremiah wrote 2 Kings, though he's not explicitly named in the text. Jeremiah was a prophet in a time when Israel was having a rough time, um, and so he was known as the weeping prophet, a little bit of a whiner, but he was a man of God when it was um, a difficult time. And so he writes this story um, to people who understand what it's like to live in a difficult time, right? First and Second Kings were written about 500 years before Jesus, and the story that, that he's writing about took place about 300 years before that. So we're talking about 800 years before the birth of Christ, okay? Elisha, the prophet Elijah, had, just, had been taken up into heaven. Elisha was succeeding him, carrying the mantle of the prophet, running around doing miracles and whatnot in a time when that was not a popular thing to do. Israel as a whole was not following God. There was only a tenuous peace between them and their surrounding countries. They were always on the brink of war. Not a great time. So the people hearing and reading this story would understand that, and maybe you can too. Anyway, it's into this setting that we come to chapter 5 and we meet a guy named Naaman. If you want to bring up 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. So Aram is in present-day Syria, east of Israel. Naaman is King Ben-Hadad's right-hand man. He won victory over Israel, and there's now a tenuous peace. He had money, he had power, he had prestige, and he would have been living his best life except for one thing. He had leprosy. Now, the Bible uses the term leprosy for all kinds of skin conditions, so we can't know for sure, but based on his reactions later in the story, it's my opinion that Naaman had the leprosy we think of, where your body parts rot and fall off, and eventually you die. There's no cure. Death is inevitable. So this is Naaman's predicament, and it's a serious one. Let's continue in verses 2 and 3. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now these kinds of raids along the border were super common. It's likely that Naaman led this raid not in an official capacity for his king, but just because he could. And that is why the servant girl ends up in his household. Now, she's a fascinating character. I wish we knew more about her, like her name, um, because think about it. She's been torn away from her home and her family, essentially into slavery, and yet she's concerned enough about the man who did that to her that she offers a solution to his very serious problem. She must have been very brave to bring this up to the people who held power over her, And she must have also been wise and faithful because she knew about Elisha. And remember, Israel is far from God right now. And I'm thinking that Naaman must have been desperate because against all odds, he listens to her. Let's continue in verse 4. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. King Ben-Hadad does not want to lose his best military leader, so he's about it. He'll try everything. 
he sends Naaman not to the prophet, as the girl had suggested, but to the king, along with a convoy loaded down with all kinds of great stuff and a letter demanding a miraculous cure. I'm thinking it was pride that caused these two men to seek healing from the palace instead of the home of Elisha, but here they are. Now, the king of Israel at this point is Joram, son of the infamous Ahab and Jezebel, and he's no better, as we are about to see, continuing in verse 7. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? King Joram is confused and terrified. He knows he can't do what they're asking. He thinks they're trying to trick him, pick a fight with him. It never occurs to him to call for Elisha, nor is Elisha welcome in the palace. He's all the way in Samaria. Instead, Elisha hears what's going on and comes to the king's aid anyway. Verses 8 through 10. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent a message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Oh, Elisha's so sassy. I love it. He's totally digging at the king when he says, Then he will know that there is a prophet in Israel, like even if you don't. So Naaman and all his entourage make their way there, and when they arrive, Elisha doesn't even bother to come out. He's all about putting people in their place. He sends a messenger and tells Naaman to do something he had to know Naaman was going to find absolutely revolting. He tells him to wash in the Jordan River seven times, seven being God's favorite number, number of days in creation, completion, perfection. So let's watch Naaman completely freak out about it in verse 11. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. So Naaman's going to turn it nationalistic. Surely the waters of his home country are better than these waters. He can't believe he's not getting the respect he deserves. I mean, doesn't this guy know who he is? He leaves in a huff, and then something unexpected happens. Naaman is again helped by those who are beneath him in society. Here in verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. God loves to use those who are on the margins. First it was the servant girl, now it's Naaman's own servants who have to talk some sense into him. Naaman, dude, it's easy, just do it. So again, he listens and he does it, and he's restored in more ways than one. Verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. 
If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ryman to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ryman, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. Naaman's convinced. Israel's God is the one true God. He will serve him and him only. In fact, he even wants dirt from Israel so he can make a proper altar. But there's one caveat. When the king goes to worship his God and he leans on Naaman so that he can bow down, Naaman will have to bow as well. Interesting, we see this big change in Naaman, and yet instead of going home to proclaim the truth he now knows to his king, his family, his country, he's asking forgiveness in advance for something he knows he'll have to do to keep his position. It's kind of like, God, I give you my whole life, my whole heart, except for this one part. I imagine many of us have been there. I think Elisha must have been suppressing an eye roll when he said, go in peace. Maybe he knew that Naaman would eventually get to the point of total surrender to the God who healed him. We're all on a journey, right? Maybe not. We don't know. Because after this story, we never hear of Naaman again. There is a Naaman that appears briefly in Chronicles, but it was a common name at the time. So um, who knows? Anyway, another character is about to come on the scene here in uh, the last half of verse 19. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to him, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, He took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. Then he sent the men away, and they left. Well, Gehazi, what a bad idea. (laughs) Now, Gehazi had been Elisha's servant for a while. He comes on the scene in previous chapters. He's most likely the servant who handed Naaman the note about going to wash in the Jordan. He doesn't like the way this whole thing has gone down, and he hatches a plan. Naaman, already acting significantly kinder, more generous, and more humble than he did before, is happy to oblige. Were there really two prophets from the hill country of Ephraim? Who knows? But what we do know is that Gehazi is a liar. (laughs) Continuing in verse 25. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves or vineyards or flocks or herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Elisha asks the question he already knows the answer to. Maybe he's giving Gehazi a chance to come clean. He really should have known better, but no. 
So the suffering that had been Naaman's was now Gehazi's and his descendants as well. Um, That was the price of his failure to act the way that God demands. And it makes you wonder about Naaman's descendants and the blessing that they will receive based on his decision to follow the Lord. So that's the story. Elisha goes on to perform many more miracles and cool stuff. The country of Aram is still Israel's enemy. But aside from Elisha, we don't hear anything from any of them ever again. I love this passage for so many reasons. Um, One is that it's a fairy tale. It reads like a fairy tale. I'm not saying it's a fairy tale in that it's not true. Please do not email Pastor Rich in Calcutta and say, Amy said the Bible isn't true. No, this book right here is the inerrant word of God. This story really happened, but it reads like a fairy tale. It might as well have begun, once upon a time there was a man named Naaman. It's also a story of how God turns things on their head. It's a story of how he will use anyone to work his will. No one is too far to be reached by him. Nothing is too hard for him. And yet God himself as a character hardly appears in the story at all because he's using his people as his hands and feet. He still does that today. It's a story that throws into sharp contrast the different ways that we can choose to respond to an encounter with God. So let's compare and contrast a little bit. First, we have the servant girl. Never even named. She's only present in three verses in the whole Bible, and yet we're discussing her impact 3,000 years later. She was already following God in a time when it was not a popular thing to do. Then the worst possible thing happens to her, but instead of turning from God and being angry and self-pitying, she seeks to help those around her, even her captors. I'm not sure I could do as well. God has always been about using people who are on the margins, who you wouldn't expect. Um, Those that society, society has written off as unimportant. Is that you today? Do you feel too small too weak, too unimportant to be used by God. Think again, because he has a plan to do wonders through you. He's been doing things like that a long time. Then we have Naaman. He knows he's important enough to be used by a king. He's a big deal by the world's standards, and yet God spends the majority of this story trying to help him understand his true place in the grand scheme of things, trying to help him understand what's really important in God's economy, in his kingdom, It takes a few tries, but Naaman is starting to get it. I wonder if we never hear about Naaman again because he loses his importance in the kingdom of Aram in the process of seeking the kingdom of God. He becomes generous where he was self-seeking, humble where he was haughty. That's what meeting God does to a person. Is that you today? What do you need to be willing to put down so that you can follow God more fully? It's not too late. It will be hard, just like it was for Naaman, but totally worth it. Then we have Gehazi. Nobody wants to be a Gehazi. He should have known better. He'd seen God do so many signs, wonders, miracles. He'd watched Elisha for the better part of his life. He'd seen God's work firsthand, if you will. And yet, bitterness and greed get the best of him. It makes you wonder if he was really paying attention. But nothing escapes the eye of the Lord, and he paid the price for his arrogance and deception. Are you headed down that path as well? Missing what God is doing right in front of your face? Maybe he's trying to get your attention. Lastly, Elisha, sassy Elisha. He doesn't pull punches and he doesn't suffer fools. How hard it must have been to be the only one trying to follow God. Maybe you felt like that, like you're in this alone. Maybe you feel like you don't have a great support system for your journey of faith. We can help you there. 
I have a team of people waiting to help you, so if that's you, please contact us. Um, you may have noticed that the text continually refers to Elisha as the man of God, the man of God, the man of God. That's what defined him. And because it's what defined him, his story is one full of God showing up, of miracles and wonders. It wasn't easy, quite the opposite. But what a story Elisha wrote. And it's just one of so many stories of transformation in this book, just one of so many God is still writing that will never get into the Bible. The Bible's a done deal. We won't be in it, but God is not done, not by a long shot. So what kind of story are you writing today? What kind of story are you hoping God will write in your life this year? I'm sure most of you, like me, are hoping God will write a story of excitement and adventure, of his faithfulness and blessing, and yet we don't always make choices that lead to those kind of stories. If we're always seeking comfort, always security, if that's our main goal, where will that lead us? I'm sorry to tell you that the adventures God has in store for you care very little for your comfort and security. God cares for, far more for our character and our obedience. Pastor and author Eugene Peterson wrote a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society. And in it, he quotes Friedrich Nietzsche, of all people, who said, <laughs> the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction, has always thereby results and has always resulted in the long run in something which has made life worth living. It is not easy nor exciting to choose the long obedience in the same direction, but if that direction is Jesus, totally worth it. We went on a family vacation to Tennessee this summer, and at one point my husband had the sniffles. So on our way to somewhere exciting, like the aquarium or the zoo or something, we stopped at CVS so that I could get him some medicine. And my girls were in the back seat, impatient to get going to the next fun thing. So I said, guys, time me. You will not even believe how fast I'm going to be. Um, and I was. I was fast. I knew right where the thing was that I needed. I got it. I did not let myself get distracted by other things in CVS. I went to pay. And I was not at all thinking about what God was doing or what kind of story I was writing. But I met someone who was. She was a cashier at CVS. Her name was Megan. Um, you could tell just by looking at Megan that there was something wrong with her. She just moved funny. Forgive me my improper terms. This is not my area, but she just moved funny. Her head kind of arched to the side, and she held her arm up strangely like this, and that's how she moved. Um, she greeted me and was scanning my item and must have noticed my shirt. I was wearing a Christian T-shirt. Um, and she, she handed me her phone, and it was open to the notes page where she had written a long note that she had clearly planned this all beforehand. And it explained that she had been born with type 1 diabetes and severe complications as a baby had very nearly killed her, but that Jesus had saved her, healed her, performed repeated miracles in her life, and um, she wanted to give him the glory and share him with me if I was interested. I wish I had gotten out my phone to take a picture of her phone because she said it so much more eloquently than I'm telling you now, but that was the gist of it. So I finished reading it, and she was done scanning me, and I said, praise God, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that with me. She said, God's still working. I said, he sure is. God bless you. And she thanked me and said um, that God had met, meant for me to meet her that day because she needed encouragement. And I walked back to the car. I don't know what kind of encouragement I possibly could have offered her. I saw it as quite the opposite. 
Megan had obviously planned ahead and realized that the best way for her to share what God was doing in her life was to write it down and have it ready so she could share it with customers um, at CVS as the Spirit led. I don't know if maybe it was taking too long to share verbally or maybe she'd gotten in trouble. I don't know, but there was clearly a plan here. That is a long obedience in the same direction. That's a story worth telling. And that's what an encounter with God will do. It did for Elisha, it did for the servant girl, it did for Naaman, and it did for Megan. A story worth telling. So what does it look like for us to live a story worth telling? <clears throat> well, just like in 2 Kings, it takes an encounter with God and it depends entirely on our response to that encounter. Jesus is a gentleman. He doesn't force himself on anyone. But if you're willing, I believe he has an amazing story to write with you. The encounters that our characters had in this story um, with God resulted in three things, conveniently all starting with G. And they are generosity, grace, and guts. Both the servant girl and Naaman show generosity in response to what God has done in their lives. She could have kept this life-saving information to herself. He was suddenly humbly giving Gehazi everything he asked and more. An encounter with God begets generosity. Generosity of time, generosity of gifts and talents, generosity of money, yes. So what is your next step toward generosity today? Maybe you need to commit to monthly tithing this year. Maybe it's time for you to join a serve team at church. Then there's grace. Naaman does not deserve to be healed. He begins the story as a villain, yet both the servant girl and then Elisha have grace for him. They help him when he does not deserve it. Grace is something that can only come from the Holy Spirit working inside our hearts. So how can you exemplify that grace so amazingly shown to us today, this year? Maybe you need to forgive someone who's hurt you. Maybe you need to invite a friend to Alpha and sacrifice your Thursday evening so that someone will know Jesus. We have a new Alpha group starting in Tiffin in February. And if you're in Wilton or Cedar Rapids, we'd love to get one started there so that more people can know Jesus. Maybe you need to forgive a friend who's hurt you. Maybe you need to help a friend or family member who does not deserve it. Encounters with God beget grace. Finally, guts, grit, bravery. It took courage for the servant girl to speak out. It took courage for Naaman to be willing to seek help. Then to say that the God of Israel is the only true God and he will serve no other. Then for Elisha to stand firm against a king and a country who would not serve God with him. We don't need to be brave in our own strength. It's the Lord that does that for us. So what area in your life do you need to show some guts today? Where can you take a step of faith in response to what he has done? Maybe you need to get baptized and you've been putting it off because it's intimidating. Maybe you've been feeling a call to the mission field, but the idea of uprooting your life is far too scary. Maybe it's time for you to finally take that step, go all in and say yes to Jesus today. Yes, Lord, I will follow you. You are the only one. I give you my heart and my life. Forgive me and save me today. It's not too late. A new year is the perfect time to take that step of faith, and it takes guts. Will you stand with me? One of my favorite books of all time is by Donald Miller. It's a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, What I Wrote While Editing My Life. You may have heard of one of his other books, Blue Like Jazz. 
it was much more popular. And Blue Like Jazz was actually turned into a movie. So this book that I'm talking about is the story of him figuring out how to turn his life into a movie. And he spends a lot of the book wondering what God is thinking about his life, how he'll talk about his life with God when it's done. And in the end of the book, he writes this. I don't wonder anymore what I'll tell God when I go to heaven, when we sit in the chairs under the tree outside the city. I'll tell these things to God and he'll laugh, I think, and he'll remind me of the parts I forgot, the parts that were his favorite. We'll sit and remember my story together and then he'll stand and put his arms around me and say, well done, and that he liked my story and my soul won't be thirsty anymore. Finally, he'll turn and we'll walk toward the city, a city he will have spoken into existence, a city built in a palace, in a place where once there had been nothing. I hope you know that God has plans to write a really cool story with your life, a story worth telling. If you have not yet begun your story with Jesus, today's the day. Please let us help you. And please let us know by talking to the people on the sides who are ready to pray with you, by talking to a pastor, by putting it in the connection card. But we want to know, um, we want to know about that today. Would you, uh, would you pray with me? God, thank you for the story that you are writing with our lives. Thank you that you are a master storyteller. And thank you that an encounter with you can change everything. Help us to have hearts open and willing and ready for these kinds of encounters, Jesus. We ask this all in your name. Amen.